There we go. Well, good morning. Hey, before I jump into Revelation, uh, some of you probably received an email this week, but I want to just let you know, it was some sad news for us, and it involves our worship pastor, Daniel Park. Uh, he decided to step back for a personal issue, and this caught us really by surprise. Uh, my first inkling was a week ago Saturday, I got a text, hey, I'm not going to be able to lead, got a family emergency. Okay, what can we do? And then it was a um, follow-up text, can I meet with you tomorrow, which would have been a week ago today. And so we met here at 1 o'clock, and he just read a letter. He just felt like at this point he couldn't go on in the position. And so we're in a transition. Um, so I'm just asking you, would you pray for this church body as a whole, uh, particularly for the people who are leading worship? Uh, they're carrying a burden. We're beginning a search for someone else to lead us in this, but you know, don't know where that will take us. Uh, and pray for Daniel and Kelsey. They are great folks. Um, they're feeling it right now. And, uh, you know, one of the things he is very concerned about is that I've hurt this body and the body. I, he cares deeply. Uh, some of you reached out to him. That is greatly appreciated. Yeah, so just be in prayer in this process as, as we're walking it through. And uh, we will keep you updated as, as God uh, reveals things to us and, and lets us know what we're going for. But for now, you know, we're, we're beginning to look and, and, and we'll just see where that goes. So a while back I read about uh, somebody who applied to an Ivy League school. And this school has an 8, 8% acceptance rate. And one of the questions on the application was, are, are you a leader? And this guy said, yeah, i got to be honest, I, I'm really not. I'm really not a leader. I'm kind of a follower. And, and much to his surprise, he got an acceptance letter from the school because he said, the people on the committee said, everybody else, literally everybody else that has applied has told us they're a strong leader. We've got to have one follower in the class with all these leaders. You know, so it wasn't what he thought that got him into this 8% acceptance rate Ivy League school. Well, I say that by, you know, sometimes we think God needs this or that, or who are the people through whom God works? Well, I want to talk about that this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to Revelation 3, we'll start in verse 7 and we'll go through verse 22. Asking this question, through whom does God work? Through whom? What kind of people does God use to further his name and his reputation? As you're turning there, let me just give us an overview of where we've been. We're about, what, four weeks in on Revelation, and we started in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. John received an apocalypse. He received a revelation. But pretty quickly in verses 3 and 4, define the purpose. This is not for us to sit around and wonder, what does this mean, and how does this go, and where does this go? No, no, this revelation, again, God is communicating through symbols a message. This revelation is a prophetic word for seven churches. And we found out these seven churches are living in a culture where their allegiance to Jesus is being challenged because the Romans have seen to deify themselves. They believe that the Roman Caesar is a mediator of God's blessings. And that six of the seven churches have temples specifically built so people could worship the emperor. Five of the seven cities have subsidized priesthood. What are the priesthoods doing? They're leading the people and worshiping the emperor. And God's favor is being bestowed. And these Christians are saying, yeah, I can't do that. Whoa. That's unpatriotic. You're going to make the gods angry. On top of that, each trade guild 
had their own God, and there'd be festivals to this God. So if you're a carpenter or you're whatever, you work in this, and, and once a month, or I don't know how often, once every six weeks, we go and, and we eat this food dedicated to this, and you say you can't do that? So it's a prophetic word. It's a warning to stay true to God and an encouragement also to stay true. But then we found out in chapter 1, verse 4, this is in a letter. This is Pastor John writing to these people. And, and he's going to give them a vision of Jesus that he said, once you understand Jesus, he can sustain you in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of your tribulation. So before we get to the last two churches of Philadelphia and Laodicea, I again want to review that vision because this is what God is holding out to these churches. So it starts in Revelation 1, verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. So John said, I'm a partaker in this. I'm going through tribulation. And I'm being called to perseverance just like you are. I'm a partaker in it. This isn't an academic exercise. And he finds out, I, John, was on the island called Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. I've been talking about Jesus. And I got exiled. I got banished. We want you to someplace where nobody else can hear you. So John's feeling it. And yet God calls him to pastor, to shepherd these seven churches. And we see that begin in verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a sound of trumpet saying, write in a book. What you see, this isn't just to entertain you, John, this is a prophetic word. For who? And send it to seven churches, to Ephesus, the closest one to Patmos, probably 50 miles away. And to Smyrna and to Pergamum. And we looked at those three churches two weeks ago. And to Thyatira and to Sardis, and we looked at those two churches last week. And to Philadelphia and Laodicea, and we'll look at those two churches this Sunday, today. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having returned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So here we go with the symbols. Taken from the book of Zechariah, we understand these lampstands represent the churches, seven of them. In the middle of lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Again, symbol, symbols taken from the book of Daniel, a, a, an eternal figure predicted. And Jesus, I'm the fulfillment of that. Continuing to borrow from the book of Daniel, clothed in robe, reaching to the feet, that's royalty, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow symbolic of the divine. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And we talked about that last week. He sees through everything. His feet were like burnished bronze, sim symbolic of strength. When he's been made to glow in a furnace, his voice, powerful, was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. And we'll find out those are seven angels. God is always resourcing his church. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And this is important because they were living in a time when they felt like Rome had the final word of judgment. And Jesus said, no, no, no. The final word of judgment is what comes out of my mouth. The sword is symbolic of judgment. I speak the final word. And that, that's important for these people to know because they feel like Rome had the final word. Jesus said, no, I don't. His face was like the sun shining in its strength, again, reflecting the glory of God. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Of course, that's typical of Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. You see God, it lays you out. And he's put his right hand on me and saying, do not be afraid. God's number one command to his people, do not be afraid. Well, why? In this case of 
intermittent persecution that seems to be growing. Why shouldn't they be? I, I, not, not the Roman emperor. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the Haiti, the keys of death and of Hades. Oh, not the government of Rome. No, no, I do. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, he's going to define some of the symbolism here which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Apparently he has assigned an angel to each church to watch over them. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So now he is going to speak to each church specifically about their circumstances, and he's going to borrow from this vision when he speaks to them. And we've looked at the first five churches over the last two weeks, and now we'll turn to look at the church at Philadelphia. Now here's what you need to know about Philadelphia. It was an agricultural church, known for its products, particularly for its grapes. In AD 17, it was laid out by an earthquake, depended on heavily from the Roman government to be rebuilt. Um, And so they they have a a loyalty to the government. They, They buy in as a city to the emperor worship. He says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write... He who is holy, who is true, has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. And again, key of David, symbolism again, this time taken from the book of Isaiah. Uh, another way of saying the key of life, which he mentioned in Revelation 1.18. I am the one who ultimately controls who lives and who dies, both physically, spiritually, and eternally. He says this, I know your deeds. Before... I put before you an open door, and I believe that's an open door to God's kingdom. And we'll find out why he's saying that when we get to verse 9. Which no one can shut, because you have a little power. You don't have much in worldly status. And, coincidentally, have kept my word and denied my name. And I wonder if there's correlation there. You've lost power, at least in the world's view, because you've kept my word and not denied my name. What specifically has been going on in verse 9? Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan. Who's that? Who say that they are Jews. Now remember, in the Roman Empire, the Jews had religious freedom. Rome was very much a polytheistic culture. They were not monotheistic, but they saw value in religion. And so they gave the Jews freedom. And, and we will recall in Luke 7, there was a centurion who needed Jesus to do him a favor, heal his daughter. And the the rabbi said, this guy built our synagogue. Rome did a lot of that, built synagogues. They were polytheistic, but they saw value in religion. So the Jews have this status, and they don't like the Christians. And so they're pointing them out to the the leaders. They are heretics. They are not of God. And so God says, they're a synagogue of Satan. Says, in the end, they seem to have power over you. In the end, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and I will make them know and, that I have loved you. I'm going to make things right one day. That's that's your bet here. Doesn't seem like it right now, but I will. Because he says, you have kept the word of my perseverance. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell in the earth. Now, here's where we're going. Next week, we're going to take a one-week break. We're going to talk about an opportunity we have to partner with a ministry in Africa. And then we're gonna, the next week we're going to come back to Revelation. Revelation 4 and 5 is going to talk about what's going on in heaven. And every, things are ordered in heaven. Okay? But then ver- chapters 6 through 22 are going to talk about what's going on on earth. 
And what's going on on earth ain't reflecting what's going on in heaven. And it's going to talk about how God's going to bring order. And it's going to start with a series of plagues. And what we're going to see, chapter 4 and 5, there's a scroll, and it's got seals on it. And those are official. That was typical of the Roman government. And so he's bothering, uh, using, borrowing this, these symbols to say, who can open? Who's got the authority to open the, the scrolls that lays out God's plans? Well, no one does until Jesus shows up. And that will lay out a bunch of judgments in the form of seals that God will lay out. And, and part of them is, is plagues. And I, I think this verse 10 is saying, I'm going to keep you from the consequences of those, those plagues. It says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Crown's a symbol of victory. If you follow me, if you stay faithful, you'll be victorious. He who overcomes, we have seen that word seven, or the sixth time and we'll see it. All seven churches are called to overcome. What? The pressure to compromise your allegiance. I will make him a pillar. That's a significant piece in my temple. Revelation 20 through 22, God's going to talk about coming back to bring his kingdom to earth. You're going to be a part of that. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my name and my new name. God says, I'm going to mark the person who's faithful to me for myself. Later we will see an antichrist marking people for himself. Jesus said, no, 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 I'm going to mark people for myself. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you know what this is saying to us? God values our powerlessness. How do you feel about that? How's that fly in a consumer culture? Where you're showing what you got and you're showing your wares and you got your car and you're putting your stuff on bed. No, no, no. I, I value your powerlessness. I can do anything. But I need to work through people who look to me. Who keep my word and don't compromise their testimony. See, we're trying to step back and learn from each of these churches, both individually and corporately. You okay with giving up power? It's a cross-cultural message. But God said, I, I do well. Notice there's no word of condemnation for the church of Philadelphia. Though they're powerless. Now, many of you, or some of you, okay, let's not overstate it. Some of you have said, boy, Andy... This is different, maybe not what I expected, it's clearer, it's whatever. Let me, if I can, bring out a point of difference. And it'll start in chapter 3, verse 10. Can we put that verse up there? It says, so he's speaking to the church at Philadelphia. Remember, they're powerless and they're powerless and they're keeping his word. And he says, because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing. And where things can get a little different is that phrase, the hour of testing. Some of you might even have study Bibles that say, oh, that's a sign that God is going to take the church out of the world when the great tribulation comes at the end of the age. I would respectfully but decidedly disagree. Three reasons. First, the law of the first listener. 
This is a word, prophetic word, given to seven churches in their specific circumstances. There is no other word or detail in the word of the seven church that is churches that is future oriented. Everything is about their circumstances in their life right now. What does it take to keep your allegiance strong to the Lord? My question is, how does it help the church at Philadelphia to know sometime, more than 2,000 years from now, God is going to take the church out at the Great Tribulation? Law of the first hearer. What did the first hearer understand? Then we draw our application principles from them. I think they heard that in my time, in my circumstances, God is going to be faithful. The hour of testing, I think, could be an empire-wide persecution. Or it could be, well, the seven, the plagues that are going to be talked about, starting in Revelation 8 and 9. God is going to judge the Roman Empire. He, says, he makes that clear. I think this refers to their specific circumstances. Law of the first year. Second reason. I disagree. The terminology, I will keep you from, is used um, once in Revelation 10 and one other time in John 17, verse 5. Can we show that verse? So this is Jesus right before he goes to the cross. And he says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Okay, here's our terminology. But to keep them from, same phrasing. He is not taking the 11 remaining disciples out of the world. He's keeping them in the world, and he's going to protect them. I think, again, the usage in the New Testament demands that we interpret this to Philadelphia. I'm going to keep you in the world, and I'm going to watch over you. Now, please know, 11 disciples, 10 of them died martyr's death. The 11th, the one that's still alive is John, and he's been exiled to the island of Patmos. But, so that doesn't even guarantee us that we won't... But, be persecuted, but it says God is going to have his hand on us. He's going to be watching over us. Second reason is the use of the New Testament. Third reason is just that many of these plagues, there'll be seals and there'll be trumpets and there'll be bowls, which God will pour out on the world to get the world to turn to him, are patterned after what happened in Egypt when God released his people from slavery in Egypt to go to the promised land. And what happened there is God's people were protected from his judgment, but not from persecution. And I think that's what God's saying here. My judgment's going to be poured out. I'm going to watch over you on that. But the idea that somehow people are going to be lifted just doesn't fit the context here. Why would it just be the church of Philadelphia? And I, who, who? I just think this is protection in the midst of hard times. So that's the church at Philadelphia, powerless, but held up by God. Now we go to the church at Laodicea, a wealthy church. They were also affected by the earthquake, and Rome offered them money, but they turned it down. They didn't need a bailout. They had their own money. And they were, they were a strong banking center, strong in natural resources, and yet that will get them in trouble. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the amen, which is the creator. The faithful and the witness, beginning of the creation, God says. And again, that's going back to Revelation 1.17. I am the beginning. I'm the alpha and the omega. I'm the first and the last. Here's what he says to him now, specifically in verse 15. I know your deeds. I'm talking about your witness here. 
that you are neither cold nor hot. Okay, a little bit of their circumstances. They had two cities around them. Colossae was known for her cold water. It was valuable for drinking. Hierapolis was known for their hot mineral water. It was value for medicinal purposes. Jesus is drawing in that symbolism. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold. I wish you were some use to me. You're not. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's not something you want to hear from God. Why is God so confrontational? Verse 17. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and catch this, have need of nothing. You're so self-sufficient. You got everything you need. Boy, if that's not a word to the wealthiest culture in the history of humanity, I don't know what is. Let me, let us listen to what God says about our wealth that leads us to self-sufficiency. Because you say I'm rich and you have become wealthy and you need nothing, and here's God's assessment. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You talk about a bad self-perception? They think they got it going. And God says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you your condition. You're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're wretched, and you're naked. Man, that'll wreck your self-esteem to hear that. But that's what, that's what God's saying. So, so here's, what he, here's what he's having to say. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Take your material possessions and get rid of them and buy something of spiritual value. Gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, rich in a spiritual sense. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And eye salve, again, there was an eye ointment that they brought them witches, riches to anoint your eyes. So what? That you may see. God's speaking metaphorically. Use your material wealth for spiritual purposes. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Verse 20, before I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I come into him, and I will dine with him, and he with me. Remember, Middle East, meal's just not a meal. It's an invitation to friendship. It's an invitation to intimacy. Jesus says, self-sufficient church at Laodicea, I'm knocking. We open the door. I want to come in. I want to connect. I want to be with you. This is where this book is going. It'll be a series of plagues and things, and then about chapter 17, it'll be God is moving to the end. And in chapter 19, the forces of evil are going to gather against God, and, and, and he's just going to, there's actually going to be no word. He's just going to speak a word, battle. There's going to, God's going to speak a word, and it's going to lay him out. And in one sense, the angel will invite, uh, invite the, the, the buzzards and the, to, to feed on the flesh. But then there'll be another meal going on. It's called the, the marriage supper of the lamb. And this is God inviting his bride to church to come celebrate. See, in, in Israel, a couple got betrothed and, and they were separated for a time. And that's where we are. We're betrothed to God and we're separated. We're expected to remain faithful. At some point, the wedding day came and God went, or the groom went to the bride's house and got her and brought her back to celebrate the wedding. And, and this is what we're talking about. And, and, and 
Jesus is saying to the church at Laodicea, you need to lay aside the self-sufficiency. I'm knocking it. I'm inviting you to a meal in eternity that, that we will celebrate our consummation. Do you want in on this? Let go of your self-sufficiency. Verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The call is to overcome these threats, these challenges to our allegiance. So we looked at a couple churches, haven't we? Philadelphia, powerless. Laodicea, rich, a lot of, lot of resources, but self-sufficient. Who are you going for, God? you got a couple choices here. I'm going for Church A. I'm going for the powerless one. Because they got no choice but to look to me. As a culture who values self-sufficiency, as a culture, and I'm speaking, who raised our kids to be what? Self-sufficient. Are we first saying, you need a dependence on God, a brokenness, a willing to be powerless because you'll keep his word and you won't compromise your testimony? See, we're asking this question, through whom does God choose to work? God works through the powerless but rejects the self-sufficient. God works through the powerless but rejects the self-sufficient. Where are you on that continuum? Where am I? Where are we as a church? And you want a model for somebody who chose to give up power, to give up control? Let's talk about Jesus. John 5, verse 19. This is Jesus speaking. Remember, this is the eternal Son of God. There's three members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, all equal. Says this, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does these things, the Son also does in like manner. You know what Jesus did? He said, For the sake of order, for the sake of the mission, I'm submitting myself. I'm giving up control to the Father. You want a model for somebody who's choosing to give up power? Jesus, our Savior. And he took it to the extreme when he went to the cross. How are we doing? And the choice between powerlessness and self-sufficiency. You know, before we close, I want us to step back and think about the seven churches as a whole, what we've learned. And to do that, I'm just going to quote Eugene Peterson. He's the one who wrote the book, The Message. I just think he says it way better than I can. So, Trina, if you put that quote up here. All right, so this is what, this is what we're kind of a, a summation. We're done with the seven churches. We're going to move on. The churches are affirmed for their untiring, unflagging, and vigilant work. That's the church at Ephesus. For brave suffering. That's the church at Smyrna. For courageous witness. The church at Pergamum. For growing and developing discipleship at Thyatira. And for brave steadfastness. Philadelphia, where do you fit? 
Where do we fit? Do we see ourselves there? But they are corrected for abandoning their zestful love of Christ. That's Ephesus. For being indifferent to heretical teaching. That's Pergamum. Being tolerant of immorality. That's Thyatira. And being apathetic. That's Sardis. Finally, for letting luxurious riches substitute for life in the Spirit. Where do you see you need correction up there? Where do I need correction? Where do we, the body at North Point Community Church, need correction? These seven churches were seven churches in history, and their allegiance was being tested. And we want to talk about this vision, these symbols, where God is going to speak prophetically to them to warn them and to encourage them to stay true. Before we push on to the rest of this vision, let's reflect on what we can learn from the seven churches. Their example is given for us. There are timeless principles that you and I can apply to our lives today. So when I was finishing up my master's degree at Texas A&M, you have to do an oral exam. And you have to get two professors to be on your committee. So you go knocking on doors. Who should you get? And so the first guy I knock on the door, and he agrees to do it, is Dr. Rose. And so he says, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do it, but, but sit down. I want to chat with you just for a minute. He said, now, you MBAs, okay, so I'm working on a master's in business administration, MBA. You MBAs, you know, you guys kind of think you know everything, and, and you know, and sometimes you, you, you kind of wreck things because you're just kind of reckless, and you don't know. And, you know, I just want to hear you say on some point in the orals that you don't know. And then we talk a little more, and he, you know, and, and anyway, you know, if you get a question that you get on that thing, and, and you don't be afraid to say you don't know. I think he says that about four times. And I think, yeah, I'm not the brightest fellow in the world, but I think I know what you're shooting for here, Dr. Rose. And so I find one other guy, I find Dr. Anthony, and, and we set up my orals, and, and I mean, we're about three, five, seven minutes in, and, and you know, I get a couple lobs right down the middle. And then here comes Dr. Rose with some question out of left field. I have no idea. I have no idea. So you know what I say? Dr. Rose, I got to be honest with you. I don't know on that one. And I think, ding, I just passed. At least I got your vote to pass. And I said, here's what I'd speculate, but, but let me reiterate one more time so you pass me. I don't know. But you know, there was something in that that we can apply in our relationship with God. Do you got stuff in your life where you got to say, I don't know? Are, are, you, are you okay with that? Do you feel powerless in some things in your life? Do you resent? No, no. I think God's. Are you afraid to step into some things because you'll feel powerless? Maybe God's calling you right into that. And laying down your self-sufficiency. Let me laying down my self-sufficiency. Because God chooses to work the powerless, but he rejects the self-sufficient. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, um, yeah, it's a hard message for a pretty self-assured culture. We've reached the heights, we've done the best, we've this, and, and, and you say, you're not impressed. No matter how much money we got, you, you got a lot more. Um, and forgive us when we turn our nose up at being out of control and being powerless. 
that might be right where you have us. So, Lord, that we would embrace your word to these seven churches. And that as we move forward and, and we see you both warning and encouraging them to keep their allegiance to you, that we would hold on and we would learn what you have for us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.